the Brussels Report podcast. Welcome to a new episode of the Brussels uh, Report uh, podcast. My name is Peter Kleppe. I'm the editor-in-chief of uh, BrusselsReport.eu. And I'm very happy, I'm delighted to have as my guest today, uh, Dick Roach, who's um, an Irish politician, has served for many years um, um, in uh, many capacities in Irish politics. uh, And I would say internationally, he's best known to have served as the Europe Minister um, of uh, Ireland. I mean, he's still a prolific writer. He has been uh, commenting also on Brussels report, for which, of course, uh, we are very grateful. So, so uh, uh, welcome, uh, Dick. And thank you very much, Peter. And, and season's greetings to all the listeners. We're yes. struggling into a new year. Hopefully, it will be better than the one that just passed. Absolutely, let's hope so. Um, so, so Dick, maybe uh, first we can discuss the Irish bailout, which was agreed in two thousand and ten. Uh, basically looking back on this so what happened is uh, uh, because of the fallout of the um, uh, of the banking crisis eventually um, the Irish banking system uh, had to be bailed out by the Irish government which in turn brought the Irish government uh, into into trouble uh, which led to a bailout uh, agreed whereby um, both European partners but also the United Kingdom um, and the IMF awarded uh, bailout loans to uh, to Ireland. So, so Dick, please tell us about this. Uh, what was behind all this and, and, and how did it all um, come that far? It's a, it's a fascinating story. And uh, Peter, it is really incredible to look back a decade uh, ago and see uh, you know, what led to this. Uh, well, first of all, what actually led to this was during the uh, during the, what we call the Celtic Tiger period in Ireland, there mm-hmm. was a huge, absolutely vast increase in uh, money flowing into the Irish economy, which was used by the Irish people to buy property. Uh, Irish people very much like to invest in property. So there was a, a housing boom. Uh, I, when I was Minister for Environment, uh, I, I remember in the, in the, in the mid-2000s uh, a- asking questions of, uh, of, of my colleagues when we're going to stop all this building, it was quite phenomenal. Hmm. Uh, so the important point is the background to the Irish bailout was quite different to those in Greece or Spain or Italy. The woes in Greece, for example, arose largely from overspending and from flawed record keeping by previous governments. Ireland's woes came from the damage caused by overextended banks uh, by busting the uh, and by a busting uh, real estate bubble. Uh, the the Irish difficulties of early in the banking, of course, came to the fore after the collapse of Bear Stearns and and uh, mm-hmm. in, in the UK and the the horrors then that followed on from the collapse of Lehman Brothers. Uh, as uh, the interesting point is that in 2010, as 2010 was drawing to a close. The Irish government was, in fact, fully funded right until mid-2011. And we in government at the time uh, took the point there, took the, took the, well, we, we had a large cash balance, about $22 billion in our National Treasury Management Agency. And there was a further $25 billion in reserves in a, a pension fund, in the, in the National Pension Fund. And the European Commission, actually, which is really interesting, because in the middle part of 2010, the Commission acknowledged 
that Ireland's proposed structural reforms, which had been come in place from the banking crisis uh, mm-hmm. of 2008, uh, that 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 this, the reforms that were in place suggested that Ireland would have would be able to return to strong and sustainable growth. What is even more interesting, and you, you'll hear why in a moment, is that in May of 2010, the Irish, the new Irish Central Bank Governor, Professor Honahan, told Bloomberg that the problems of Ireland's major banks were well on the way to being fixed. Mm. However, and this is a very, very important however, uh, in 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 or around the summer, middle summer in in uh, twenty ten, there were concerns in the ECB, uh, and we only learned in the Irish government at the time that ECB personnel were briefing very negatively uh, against Ireland, predicting that the Irish government would have to enter into a bailout. Mm-hmm. It was one, I have to say, it was in 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 my personal view, one of the most. Uh, disillusioning moments in my political career when I actually found out what was happening from technocrats who yes. were never elected by anybody. Officials mm-hmm. in Brussels were concerned that Ireland's fiscal state was contrib- contributing to the volatility on bond markets and uh, so, so there was real difficulties. As we entered November 2010, uh, things really were going from bad to worse. I, I have very specific diary entries uh, from the 16th of November, 2010. The Irish Department of Finance said that Ireland was not heading for a bailout. Uh, and the reason it's in my diary is I gave press briefings at the time arguing Ireland didn't need a bailout, that we weren't going to have a bailout. That was it. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the 17th of November, things changed. Uh, there was a... There was a, a <coughs> council meeting and apparently at that council meeting uh, things got very heated and the Irish Central Bank Governor Honahan who had only a few weeks earlier said that we were on the way to recovery uh, took alarm. He phoned the Irish Finance Minister uh, and uh, started to talk about moving to a bailout. Uh, the, the Minister Brian Lenahan at the time wouldn't budge he said I can't make an announcement on that mm. without actually discussing it with cabinet members. And on the 16th of November, there had already been a debate on the issue in the Irish Parliament. Uh, it, there was a particularly and bizarre uh, episode, however, on the 18th of November, when the central bank governor <laughs> went on Irish radio in the early morning program, program and said Ireland would need a, a bailout, and he said, of tens of millions. He got his sums badly wrong, tens <laughs> of millions. Uh, and and, and uh, from there on in, there was absolutely no possibility uh, that anybody was going to trust the Irish government at the time. We yes. refused uh, in the Dáil by opposition, who were suspicious uh, and, 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 and who had every right to be. We refused of lying. Uh, the confidence in the general public went to zero, uh, absolutely zero. Uh, so Ireland was forced, whether we wish to or not, to enter into a, a bailout discussions. And the bailout discussions were, to put it mildly, I have always thought were egregiously damaging. Uh, first of all, the rate that Ireland was forced to set uh, to accept was higher than that charged uh, to Greece. More importantly, however, unsecured bondholders in Irish banks were not forced to contribute. Before the... That's interesting. Well, it's very interesting because what is very interesting is what lies behind that. 
I personally and members of my, my party at the time uh, were very much aware that the Irish public took the view, and they were right to take the view, uh, that the irresponsible behaviour in banks, particularly banks that had only come into Ireland, mm-hmm. the irresponsible behaviour in banks had made an excessive amount of credit uh, available. I mean, it was literally money was flooding through the doors of the banks into building and, and, and speculation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the that irresponsible behaviour was well flagged. Bondholders who were making investments and making punts in Irish banks at that time well understood that. Mm-hmm. The agreement in the arrangements that were agreed, not only was Ireland going to pay more in interest, but the Irish taxpayers uh, were having to pick up the cost for the banking misbehaviour. And, and that has always rankled with me. Well, and European taxpayers as well, right? Because uh, it's one thing to give a bailout. It's another to shield uh, risky investment. That's correct. I mean, Ireland has paid its debts, but there has been a decade of hardship that Irish people didn't actually need to go through. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, we had to correct, that's for certain. Yes, there had been irresponsibility. There is no doubt about that. Yes, there had been failures, egregious failures in terms of, of, of control of banking uh, in, in this country and across the world. But uh, the, the, the bailout and the fact that, the, that bondholders were not uh, expected to make any contribution was, was unjust in my view. Uh, the other point that, that struck me at this time uh, was that, uh, and that has always bothered me, is that tech, uh, technocrats had granted themselves powers that should only be exercised by democratically answerable officials. Mm. Uh, I said this at the time. I remember I wrote a lengthy piece for the Wall Street Journal uh, in 2011 on, on this, and I made that particular point. There was one other issue that, that really only came to the fore shortly afterwards. It was the extent to which the U.S. had called the shots. Okay. And that the, 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 the really the, the deep, Involvement, particularly by by Geithner, uh, the, the Geithner was very much opposed to the idea of burning bondholders. So Timothy Geithner, that's basically uh, Obama's uh, uh, Treasury Secretary. Treasury Secretary, absolutely correct. It was the Obama administration. Uh, they were, uh, I mean, and it's perfectly legitimate for a, a U.S. administration uh, to take the view that. Uh, they wanted to protect bondholders. They didn't want to have uh, further crushing of the economy. That's mm. their view, uh, and they're entitled to that view. But they don't have the right, in my view, to call the shots in Europe. And they were calling the shots in Europe. Uh, the uh, It caused huge pain in Ireland. And I think there's a, sta- a salutary lesson there uh, to us, because we in Ireland... I've always been very positive towards the United States. I'm, I'm very positive towards the United States. Mm-hmm. But it's a salutary lesson to us all uh, that when push comes to shove, uh, when you find yourself in difficult times, uh, American interests come first. And of course, if you're the president of the United States... Well, or, or banking interests, we should probably say, because these were basically American banks having uh, taking massive risk, and now they're asking Irish and European taxpayers and American taxpayers well, to, you, to you pick up the tap. I was tempering my language, and I think you put it much more precisely for, for, for those who are listening uh, to the podcast. It wasn't, it wasn't Irish interests. 
and it wasn't European interests that determined this policy. Uh, and so it, 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 is, it is an issue that has always rankled with me and something that I felt need, feel needs to be more, uh, more debated and discussed. Now, looking back over the last 10 years, what has happened at the time, there was a lot of suggestion that Ireland as a country would be bankrupt. But that didn't happen. Uh, on a positive notes, Ireland survived, but it did survive uh, with a lot of changes. Uh, the, the, the banking bailout uh, led to fundamental changes uh, mm. in, in Ireland. I mean, the political balance in Ireland has never gone back to what it was. Uh, of course, as, 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 as a person who represented a party that was very badly damaged, I, I see that as negative. Other people, of course, may not necessarily see it that way. But I, I think that the, the takeaway for me is that it, it was it was there was often suspicion and often discussion and debate about, for example, in the United States about the deep state. Mm-hmm. The deep state doesn't just exist in D.C. It actually has very healthy branches in Europe too, and mm-hmm. the role I was played that was played by the ECB I think was. What really something that needed to, to be more carefully examined. The European Commission, as I say, and the IMF. The IMF, actually, when you go into it in depth and look at how the IMF wanted uh, things handled, the IMF comes out, out quite well. Uh, but there, there are lessons for us about what happens in the background in Europe. And, and that leads us to, to, you know, to, to where we are in Europe now and, and, uh, and what kind of Europe we're talking about. I mean, my belief in Europe has always been, and I think you know this, that Europe is is it, 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 it's it's a it's a union of sovereign nations. Democracy is at its core. If decisions are made behind closed doors, you have to start questioning. Yes. Sovereign, and where is democracy? And on that note, uh, Dick, um, I personally always found the Irish case quite interesting because, like you said, Ireland was the Celtic tiger. I mean, according to me, this was because of very brave reforms made at the end of the 80s and in the 90s. Uh, and, and Ireland truly was um, a great example of policy reform, free market policy reform. Um, and and you, you're not a Eurosceptic. I mean, you've served as the, the vice president of, uh, of ALDE, the, the liberal uh, faction in the, uh, in the European Parliament. Um, so I think it's interesting when, you, when I hear you quite critical looking at the actions of the technocrats of the ECB. And this is indeed, I think, one of the one of the things that became visible with the euro crisis, how adopting um, the euro has uh, not only led to a lot of easy money, which was visible in Ireland, eh? uh, the, the government was more or less responsible, but because the banks got so much easy money from the ECB, a lot of it went into went into real estate. And, and I personally think it, was, it would have been very hard for Ireland to stop the real estate bubble. Uh, and the best thing that could have been done is to afterwards let those that invested excessively to, uh, to pay the brunt. But as you made clear, the United States was very much uh, opposed uh, to that because they were, I think, afraid of the, um, of the contagion. Uh, now, um, I mean, looking back, would you... Would you say it was um, it was a mistake for Ireland to join the euro, or do you believe that it it could have been a good thing if handled differently? Uh, just uh, first of all, on joining the euro, no, I, I I believe Ireland was right to join the euro. 
Mm. And uh, the circumstances in Ireland, remember, were sp very specific. Although we had our own punt, our own pound, it was very much tied to decisions that were made in London. Mm. So from Ireland's point of view, joining the euro was the only course of action that was available. And I was an enthusiastic supporter for it. Mm -hmm. uh, what I don't think people like myself, who actually, and I still am, very strongly pro-Europe, I, I, what I don't think we ever foresaw is that an institution which was established to be at the heart of Europe uh, should be so influenced uh, by uh, forces outside Europe. I, I, as I say, I fully appreciate exactly why Timothy Geithner and the Obama administration took the view they were taking. Mm -hmm. It was informed by U.S. interests. I'm not certain that the views and that the brief, particularly the negative briefing that was going on uh, in Frankfurt and in Brussels uh, by technocrats. I don't think that that was necessarily informed uh, by the best interests of Europe or of Ireland. For certain, that's not the case. Mm. Fair enough. Good. Let's maybe move to the, the second uh, subject of, of this podcast, uh, which is um, Brexit. Uh, and, 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 and of course, as an Irishman, um, you, you, I mean, Ireland is also at the front row of, of this debate. Uh, the Brexit deal still is being uh, implemented. Some tariffs are still due to come into force on the 1st of January. Some restrictions, like for British van drivers, um, restrictions will enter into force sometime in 2022. And, and of course, most notably, because uh, a hard border had to be avoided on the island of Ireland, um, checks have to take place in the Irish Sea between um, Great Britain and Northern Ireland, which is something uh, the UK government is having a lot of trouble with uh, implementing. Um, and um, there's still no, not even an interim deal on this. Uh, we also saw Lord Frost, uh, the British uh, Brexit negotiator, resigning. So, so what's your take on all this? I mean, is uh, is the EU playing it too hard toward the UK, or or um, are the Brits trying to exploit this for political gain? Uh, what's what's your uh, what's your take on this, Dick? Yeah, I. I have a very critical attitude towards the current UK administration on this issue. Mm -hmm. and, and I'll explain, and it'll, it'll strike your listeners as rather odd. Um, over the years, I've tried to build up personal relationships in Northern Ireland, particularly with people of the unionist community. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I am an Irish Republican, very pleased with where I am. But I also believe that one has to have a lot of respect uh, for the other people on this island who take a different view. Mm -hmm. If you're really liberal, you'll always be prepared to listen to other people's viewpoint. True. And, and I, I've always been struck uh, listening to unionists uh, in Northern Ireland when, when they talk about how much they feel they're lost or the dangers to what they hold dear, that we should listen more carefully and we should try to be helpful. Now, in the case of Brexit, uh, I, I think the thing that really appalls me is the way the unionist concerns in Northern Ireland have actually been used and abused by the, by the Johnson administration. And I really think it, mm -hmm. it, it, it really is something that needs to be looked into very carefully and, and changed. 
before the Brexit referendum, Boris Johnson visited Northern Ireland and he gave absolute assurances uh, to members of the unions, unions community that nothing was going to change. There was going to be no border. There was going to be uh, no uh, arrangements. He actually said in, in one uh, famous occasion that if anybody gave them uh, customs documents, they could tear them up, burn them or send them to him. Uh, that was never going to be true. If mm-hmm. we wanted to avoid a hard border and w- with its negative impacts on the island of Ireland, some special arrangement had to be made. Mm-hmm. And I, at the time, uh, I remember writing an op-ed uh, for your active saying that the British needed to become aware that Ireland, Ireland was an island. And that offered, offered opportunities. By the way, customs clearance issues could have been done on the far side before the goods got on the track, on the truck. Mm-hmm. It, didn't need, it didn't need to be handled <coughs> the way it was, which inflamed unionists, particularly on one side of unionism in Northern Ireland. I, I think the, uh, if you go back to Lord Frost's uh, appointment, I think he, from day one, and I was quite surprised at this because Lord Frost, after all, had a long career as a diplomat. <laughs> I would have imagined uh, that he would have had diplomatic skills. But he, he showed a singular lack of diplomatic skills from the very outset. He, for example, he, in February of last year, uh, February, sorry, February last, he actually told uh, a select committee in the House of Commons uh, that uh, since the beginning of 2020, the trade deal, had helped to negotiate had become had become problematic and bumpy. Bumpy, and it, what he actually said was he said, he said he, the problem getting over the problems will require a different spirit from Brussels. Now placing all the blame for the administrative and bureaucratic issues on Brussels uh, was neither fair nor reasonable. When the person who placed the blame on Brussels was the person who did the negotiations, it's just outlandish. The idea that that you need a different spirit uh, in Brussels also applied to, to London. Now, within weeks of him taking charge, uh, relations between London and, and Brussels went from bad to worse. Uh, he, he threatened the UK. Uh, would uh, would unilaterally extend the grace period for checks, particularly in, in food-related goods, areas where there were genuine problems, uh, that goods that were shipping from the UK well, to yes. Northern Ireland. But, I mean, the reality of it was having a few months earlier negotiated this deal to actually say you can simply scrap it it's neither diplomatic nor rational. I, I think you have a good point there. I think, um, I mean, looking at the UK, uh, for example, is demand to scrap the role of the ECJ for Northern Ireland. I personally find that demand very um, like well justified. Um, but then they should not have agreed it in the first place, right? Um, I think that's, that's, that's an entirely fair point. I, I would disagree with you that I mm-hmm. think you, 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 the ECJ is the appropriate body to do the reviews within the context of European law. But to actually say that, oh, we're going to negotiate it, we'll sign off on it, and then we'll tear it up three months later, that's that's, that's problematic. I think, oh, to be fair to, to David Frost, he did negotiate the deal. Um, I think also that, um, I mean, the um, what, what Theresa May tried to get through, um, through Parliament, which failed three times, 
was to to have a deal where the ECJ was the arbiter not only for this like small part of of um, of the whole deal, which is Northern Ireland, but for for every dispute in UK EU relations, it's like if you would have a, a trade deal between the states and uh, Europe. And you would say, let's make the U.S. Supreme Court uh, the arbiter of any dispute. That's weird. Right. So, that's, and still, Theresa May tries to get that through Parliament. And and one of the achievements I think of trust of Frost was to 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 in the end secure a deal with with without that of or with almost uh, none of that. Well, well, with that, with, with sorry to go back to your analogy between uh, Europe and the United States. You're right. Um, uh, I think Theresa May, uh, we're not discussing her, but I think that there were errors there too. Uh, by, by actually honing it down to the specific areas where the ECJ would have, have, have and by limiting it, mm-hmm. uh, I think that, that, that was an achievement on the British negotiating side. But it was also an achievement on the European side. As, as, as Maris Sertovich suggested, that the, the idea that you could unilaterally breach international law, which the treaty which was signed between Europe and the UK was uh, is simply wrong. Mm. You know, not only does it ruffle feathers in Brussels, uh, but the flat-footed approach that was adopted by Frost also ramped up tensions in Northern Ireland, in Ulster. And I think that was unforgivable. I mean, you know, I, I lived through a period where every single day we were hearing horrific reports in mm. Northern Ireland during the Troubles, during, during the Troubles. Uh, I was driving along a street in Dublin uh, at one stage, and at the bottom of that street, a car blew up, and people were burned to death on the street. People died. 32 wow. people died. Uh, and, you know, this, this happened occasionally in the, the Republic of Ireland, but this was a daily event in Northern Ireland, where neighbour was pitted against neighbour, where if you look at the per capita death rate and you actually you were to, to work it out mathematically equivalent in the UK or where any large country, it would be horrific. Mm. So really anything that undermines that, the peace that was bought, brought about by people on both sides, remember it was unionists and republicans and nationalists who came together uh, with assistance from Europe and from the United States uh, to work out a peace deal which has endured for the years. To put that at any kind of risk is not... Well, I, I absolutely agree, of course. Um, now, as they say in, uh, in London and perhaps in Dublin, we are where we are. And Liz yeah. Truss is now uh, taking over, uh, has taken over from uh, Lord Frost. And, I mean, it seems to me the big remaining uh, challenge after the UK has dropped its demand to scrap the ECJ is to smoothen the Irish sea checks. And, and personally, I've always seen, seen this as an area where the EU can be flexible because the big, the big entry ports for the EU are the ports of Rotterdam and, and, um, and, and Antwerp, of course. And um, if the EU is so worried about stuff entering its single market and customs union, that's where it should step up the checks, not in the possible backdoor through Northern Ireland. I mean, in my humble opinion. You know, um, if we had a long time, I'd advise you to look at a, a famous podcast that was made a few, a few last year uh, by a comedian in Ireland who said that uh, okay. 
people of Leitrim need a hard border because uh, there were, they had their, their big skill was in a big skills in part of this country has been uh, you know uh, avoiding borders and 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 doing a little bit of the, uh, backdoor smuggling. But yeah. Uh, no, yeah, look, you're 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 right. If the will is there, a way will be found to solve mm-hmm. the problems. Uh, I, I don't think that some of the rhetoric from some of the hardline unionists in Northern Ireland helped. I mean, there were ministers who decided that they weren't going to build posts for the staff and what happened. Yes. Sil- there was a lot of silliness. Yes, I, I exactly. Actually, yeah. I, I take, I have to say, I um, and some friends of mine say you're, you're foolish to actually trust anything that comes out of London. But I think that the changes recently, the, the ramping down on the uh, on the ECJ, I think that's very important. I think I actually think that the negotiating team from Brussels, because I'm sometimes very critical of Brussels, but I think the negotiating team there, by calming the language down, have done a very very good job. I think Seth Bridge has done a really 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 good job. I, I'm not sure about trust. Liz Truss has experience in this area because of her pre- previous experience in trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, uh, uh, and it's interesting that uh, she has, uh, from previous contacts, I think quite a good relationship with the Irish Minister for Foreign Affairs, uh, Simon Coveney. Okay. So I, I think there are, there are signs of hope there. And uh, I mean, some of the cynical reaction in Dublin has been, or Liz Truss cannot be but an improvement. And that's a bit unfair uh, because I think she has talents beyond just being better than 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 her predecessor. So hopefully, hopefully, uh, common sense, which is very frequently uh, in uncommon short supply, yes. uh, will, break <laughs> out, will, will break out and hopefully uh, the, the difficulties will be ironed out. They are, as you say, they're not huge. Uh, if people get off their high horses and don't decide to, you know, climb on high principles uh, and show a bit of pragmatism, a bit of goodwill and willingness to listen, I actually do think a solution can be found. Well, definitely. Let's hope so um, in the new year. Now, uh, let's let's move to our last uh, topic, Dick, which is uh, the, the future um of the European Union after uh, after Brexit. So, so how, how do you see this? I mean, we have this... Uh, let's say, um, leading economy, uh, leaving the club. Um, People are still a little unsure also because, of course, COVID just uh, happened uh, following the actual implementation of Brexit, what this all means. Um, So so what's what's your take on this and and what's next for, uh, for the EU? Yeah, you, you, you're actually right. Um, uh, uh, Europe was hit not just with a large and important economy leaving the European Union, but it was also hit with the unprecedented struggles that we've all had in dealing with, with mm-hmm. COVID. It's, it's, so, so you're quite right. And it's, it's, they're all related. There's only so much time and effort that people can put into governing anything. And if you have two major crises hitting you at the same time, then you're in, then you're in difficulties. Um What's the future? Uh, I have to say, I was a member of the the previous convention on the future of Europe, and I was very, very impressed by that. Uh, we worked very closely uh, in in uh, the members of the convention. Uh, I, I was very much involved in a group called the Friends of the Community Method, which was a bit of a poke in the eye for Giscard. But uh, however. Uh, hmm. They uh, they um, 
we did have very strong views. We represented the smaller member states and we had very strong views uh, that Europe needed to define its own role in the world. And recently, there has been some talk about strategic autonomy. Now, I'm not sure quite what it means because I've never heard a really good definition. Mm-hmm. But it does seem to me that Europe needs to have the confidence to take its own place in the world. Europe needs to be the master of its own destiny. It doesn't need to be placating one side or the other side in the global tussles that go on and go backwards and forwards. Uh, and I'm dismayed, I have to say, at the amount of external influence that is exercised on Europe, uh, largely by the US and, and in no sense negative to the US, but I think Europe has a responsibility to itself. We are a unique organization, 27 sovereign nations, and I emphasize the word sovereign nations, who mm-hmm. have decided to pool small amounts of their sovereignty, but to expect subsidiarity to rule in all other issues. Uh, and I'm not sure that that always happens. And I can give you a couple of examples. I'm a, I'm a great fan of the European Parliament from, from the beginning. And people who have this discussion with me in Brussels say, are you mad? And I say, no, no, it's it's a unique body. So yeah. five men and women. I, I tend to be more critical to it myself, but then... Uh... I, 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 know <laughs> I, I, I know that, and that's why I'm being deliberately provocative. <laughs> it, you has go. it has the capacity to be an extraordinary example of democracy. And I'm not sure that it always fulfills that capacity because I think the rules and the way it's... I agree stifled, there. Yeah. I think the rules and the way it has stifled and the way it has, has uh, allowed itself to be, uh, how would you, we say, corralled maybe by mm-hmm. the European Commission, the other institutions, something that bothers me. I, I am a great believer in democracy. And I, I say this to people I represent. I say this to, to clients uh, that I advise. Europe, the European Parliament, remember this much, the 705 members in there, they have something that is unique. They actually have a mandate from the millions and millions of people across Europe. Uh, and, and that's worth just bearing in mind. But going back to the wider question, uh, where does Europe go from here? I, I really think Europe needs to be more confident in its own capacity. I would like to see, and I'm a, I'm more than a bit disappointed at the current uh, convention, which I, I know it is challenging times because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Can't, can't say the, the kind of uh, progress that was made previously but I'm not sure it's going anywhere. Uh, and that's not a criticism of anybody, but there needs to be, uh, there needs to be a relook at that. Uh, I, I think Europe needs to define its own position. Powers, power is changing, and it's a good time to define uh, its position. Uh, there's a shift in Germany now with Mrs. Merkel, who has been you know, a rock uh, and who has served Europe well and, and served Germany well a person I got to know from a number of small, uh, small number of meetings, but always had a high regard for. Um, it's very interesting to see what's happening. The, the French elections uh, coming up are going to be very interesting, and uh, I, uh, it would be wrong with me to start speculating, but I don't see great changes coming there. But Europe needs, we need to define our position. There's one other thing that we need to do. Uh, sorry, there's a number of things that we need to do. One of them, I think, that needs to be done is uh, the countries that joined Europe in more recent years, particularly those in Central and Eastern Europe, a bit more respect needs to be shown to those countries. 
I, I don't like to see any member state being the focus of uh, just attack after attack after attack. Uh, certainly there are policies I don't agree with, that's, that's, that's as it may be, mm-hmm. but governments are sovereign and the people in those countries have the right to elect the governments they wish and to reject the governments as they wish. Very that's true. Not matter, that's not a matter for anybody else. Um, so I, I think we need to define our position. I also think, uh, and as I say, I come from a position that I've always been very positive about the United States. I need to, I need, I think Europe needs uh, to look more closely uh, to the way we continuously dance to the tune that's played out of Washington. Uh, I, I don't think we should define ourselves as being negative towards Washington. But we should say, look, we respect you, we respect your democracy, we respect your institutions, and in return, we expect the same. I think the outreach of your of US influence and US law into Europe is, is in my view, uh, very threatening. It undermines the sovereignty of the European project. And I can millions of cases. I, I give you one specific case that I, I thought infuriated me recently. Mm-hmm. Infuriated me recently. It was when a group of U.S. senators came together to sponsor legislation to punish a German port, uh, in which uh, which was doing business out of the Nord Stream Two project. And while, whatever one's views about Nord Stream Two, to actually have three U.S. senators writing to the management of a port in Germany threatening all sorts of dire consequences on them and on their customers. It's just mm. not acceptable. Yes, it's exactly. on our sovereignty. It's not acceptable. Mm. And Europe should be very strong. And, and in, the same, in the same token, if you go back to uh, the, um, when Mr. Trump decided to walk, walk, walk away from the arrangements from the JCPOA, mm-hmm. and then the Trump administration uh, promised hellfire and damnation uh, on European companies uh, that continue to do legitimate business in Iran. In fact, some of that business was humanitarian. That's not acceptable. Mm. That is not the way a friend should behave. Uh, I agree, uh, Dick. And um, I mean, being very pro-American myself, um, I would like to add that in the States, uh, in politics, the same people that are typically critical of um, um, you know, runaway uh, central banking money printing, uh, they, they are also critical of all this uh, sort of foreign interventions. Of course, the war in Iraq was the the most uh, drastic, spectacular failure. But even Afghanistan was a was a was a massive failure uh, of the of the states of of the hubris. It thinks um, and and in a way, it's very anti-American. You know, this this uh, America was initially um, against all kinds of uh, foreign interventions. It was uh, in favor of merely trading word to word, like a big Switzerland. That's the, that's the original American ideal. And and I agree with you that, that uh, what, for example, what these senators are doing, even if I'm personally also not a fan of this Nord Stream 2 thing, I mean, uh, I mean, where does it all end if, if we would uh, allow that to, to stand? Peter, that's exactly the point. That to actually ask these questions is not to be anti-American, and, and I really get upset when people say, "Oh, you you, you developed a very into a very anti-American way of thinking, Dick." That's not true. Mm. I remember when uh, I went to the United States and Canada in 1978 as a human rights fellow. I remember arriving in Washington, 
I remember going to the capital. I was very, very lucky. I was given uh, access around the capital at that time through Tip O'Neill's office. Uh, my leaning then, and I suppose my leaning would tend to be, as being Irish, be towards the Democratic Party. I, I remember mm-hmm. being struck by the civility in the U.S. Congress. I remember being struck by the balance of the U.S. media. All of that has changed. You now have a situation where, where there's a country which is roaring, shouting at each other hysterically from one side or the other, neither side willing to listen. Uh, I, my, great, my great dismay is that the America, which I knew, is beginning to deteriorate and it's being replaced by something which I don't want to know. Uh, what I don't want as a European, as a committed European, what I do not want is the politics and the political exigencies of Washington to determine what we do in Europe. And no matter what it is, mm-hmm. whether it's Nord Stream 2, that's an issue which we decide amongst ourselves. Whatever the issues we have for or against, that's an issue for the German people uh, to decide. It's not an issue that will be decided by people taking a right or left view in, in, in Washington. Whether it's, it's, it's that, whether it's our telecommunications networks, whether it's, it's how we operate our taxation systems, these are sovereign matters for Europe. And if you actually look at, at the piece I wrote, well, I'm sure you have, the piece I wrote recently in, in Brussels Report, yes. where I was looking at, at how the FCPA has been dramatically extended so that's uh, for the listeners. That's U.S. legislation, um, or you can explain it maybe yourself. Well, they say the U.S. legislation that deals with bribery and corruption. Yes. Now, legislation that deals with bribery and corruption is very welcome. We have we have such legislation in Europe. It's up to European governments and European agencies to patrol what European companies do. It's not up to the Department of Justice. It's not up to the SEC in the UK in the U.S. to do this. So uh, I have a problem there, not with the principle. When I think when during the uh, Carter presidency, when President Carter signed the the Foreign uh, Corruption Prevention Act, the FCPA, back in 1977, when he signed that legislation, it was wonderful. It was a really good example for the rest of the world to follow. And of course, subsequently, countries did follow. But it didn't make U.S. agencies the deputy sheriff to go around the world and patrol how everybody else does business. And particularly, as they have shown, a blind eye uh, to some American businesses that mm. have an S. Well, well, this, as you wrote, while well, disproportionately targeting um, European companies. Well, if you look at the, at, at the consequences for European companies, certainly European companies that were involved in bribery and corruption deserved to be, have their knuckles slapped. They deserve to be brought to justice. Mm-hmm. They deserve to be stopped in that. But if you actually look at, particularly the Alstrom case, which is a case that fascinates me, the Alstrom case, uh, if you look at, at that, you, if you read that objectively, you cannot but come to the conclusion that there were issues more than a concern about bribery and corruption underlying that. And if you again, if you look at other cases, Look at the Statoil case, which was the first case of a European company, a Norwegian company owned by the Norwegian government, 
that was charged under the FCPA after it, that, that after the act had been amended during the Well, and if I may uh, just comment, actually, I think this is uh, even part of a much wider debate. You may remember how uh, Canada was uh, prosecuting a Chinese business lady, and in 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 retaliation in China, some random Canadian business people were locked up on bogus charges. In the end, I think they were uh, released, but it took quite a while. Um, and and I think this is, of course, this is the Chinese style, which is much worse than than uh, what uh, what the US is doing. Uh, well, but but in mm-hmm. I, rather than get into that sure. particular debate, uh, I, I mean, when one reads uh, uh, Frederick Perucci's book, uh, and consider how he was treated, he was a human hostage. Uh, you know, look, the reality of it is uh, that Europe, in all of these matters needs to have to go its own way it needs to actually have its own it, it needs to have its own principles which it applies and it, it, it bothers me uh, that our principles are the way we operate should be externally determined they should not they should be determined within europe where we have a right uh, each one of us who votes we have a right to actually give our judgment occasionally on mm. the way our governments and through our governments, the way Europe operates. So I, 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 I just have serious misgivings uh, about this. And as I say, in, in the case of the FCPA, I really do not agree with the way the American administrations have operated. Yes, yes. Uh, they have turned what was a very good piece of legislation with very good intent. They've turned it into an economic and political weapon. And that's not appropriate. It's not appropriate and it shouldn't be done. All right. Um, Dick, maybe one more question to, to conclude. Um, what is your greatest wish, uh, let's say, in policy terms for 2022? <laughs> so many wishes. I, I, I would actually like Europe to come out of its slumber. I would like to see the idea of whatever strategic autonomy means for Europe being discussed. I would like to see Europe defining its role in the wider wider world. It's We're not there to be a ping pong ball between different geopolitical groups. We are there to serve the people of Europe. And I think we don't do that well if we actually allow somebody else to call the shots. Europe is a democratic project And if it ceases to be a democratic project, either because technocrats take too much power to themselves or because we let an an external force determine where uh, our our direction of travel, uh, then we have undermined the the dream that was there when Schumann and when Europe was created. Europe is not meant to be a super state. It's never meant to be that. It is a, a unique arrangement where sovereign nations, as I said earlier, pool a small amount of their sovereignty as a means of serving the people of those nations and the people of Europe better. And we need to get back to that basic principle. We need to define what Europe is, uh, and we need also to define where we're going. Good. Well, th- thank you. Uh, thank you for that. And thank you for a fascinating uh, discussion. Um, let's stay in touch, uh, Dick, and I, I look forward to, to many articles of you uh, for, uh, for Brussels Report. Well, thank you very much, Peter, and, and I hope everybody has a much better 2022 than we did 2021. 
Let's hope so, absolutely. Thank you. The Brussels Report Podcast.